Greetings, everybody, and welcome back to the Preacher's Corner. I'm Pastor Jay, and today we're going to be getting into John chapter number 7, beginning in verse number 16, and working our way down. As we start, let us turn to the Lord, asking for His blessing upon this week and upon this day in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the blessing of this Monday. And Lord, though it is typically considered Mondays to be a horrible day, and people often are found dreading to enter into Mondays because of what they bring, Lord, let us be a people in Christ that see every day as an opportunity to be able to serve you, worship you, and praise you. And so, with that mindset, Lord, we will give you thanks for this day, asking thy blessing be upon us, no matter what we've faced, no matter what trials we've had to endure, no matter what we've dealt with. Father, that we will remember that you have delivered us to this point, and so that you will deliver us the rest of this day, that we may live the rest of it well in Jesus' name. And again, we'll give you praise and thanks. Amen. All right, guys, as a bit of an overview, we're going to be taking a look at uh, verses 1 down to 15 and just recalling from Friday what we what we got out of that. And, of course, the first thing we understand is that we've come into what is called the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Uh, the Hebrew name for this is Sukkot, and it is taking place. This is the last of the fall festivals. You're, you're coming somewhere around November at this point of time, uh, as far as our months will go. Uh, between September and October is the period of time where the fall feasts kick off, and it's right towards the end of October coming into November that Feast of Sukkot will take place. And so it's, it's very exciting to realize that we actually can know about the periods of time that different events happen in Jesus' life such as when we go backwards and we were over in chapters 5 going into 6 and we discovered that we were at Passover. So from Passover, we know it would be March or April time frame for what we uh, we have on our calendar. Now, our calendar is based on a 365-day year, whereas their calendar is based on a 360-day year. So there's going to be some variation between ours and theirs, but we're able to track the period of time that Jesus is ministering and in the locations where Jesus is ministering. And literally, uh, it also shows you between rather one chapter to another chapter, you've got close to six months of time that has transpired between the two accounts or the events that are taking place. So that's also something that's pretty important to wrap your head around when you're, when you're dealing with this. Oftentimes, when we read through the New Testament, a lot of these things, like we'll read, well, it's come near to the Feast of the, of the Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, and we'll say, okay, whatever, whatever that is, it's just a, one of their festivals. But the important thing about knowing when those festivals happen and what those festivals are all about, as revealed in Leviticus chapter 23 or throughout the books of Torah, that, that we would be able to say, oh, okay, so this is happening around our Thanksgiving and Christmas time. This is happening around uh, these different uh, periods and different months, so we have a better understanding of, wow, that's a lot of time this transpired between the last conversation we were at and this conversation we're in. <laughs> it's pretty cool, I think. Nevertheless, there are three main festivals that, that all of Israel has to make pilgrimage to 
Jerusalem during this period of time. The first festival we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the first festival is Passover. It, it is a, a given unto all of Israel to make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for the time of the Passover. The second feast that is necessary for pilgrimage is the Feast of Pentecost, or as it would be said in the Hebrew tongue, Shavuot. Now, the Feast of Weeks has several different names for the same thing, but when you read through Scripture, you might see the, the term Feast of Weeks. You might see the term like in Acts chapter number 2. You'll see the term Pentecost. And these are all the same festival as Shavuot, as is written in Hebrew. And, and at this point, the celebration feast is about the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and about the offering of the first fruits of the grain offerings that they make from the gleanings of their fields. And so it is necessary for everybody to come together in Jerusalem. That's why in the book of Acts in chapter 2, when, when you have the disciples in that upper room preaching essentially to the world in that moment, they were speaking to a multitude of different Jews from all over the, the different locations of the world. But understand that the Jews didn't say when they were in, in, at that moment in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they didn't say that they heard what they said in Hebrew because everybody that was at the temple, everybody that was around that area, all knew and understood Hebrew. But what the people said in Acts chapter 2 is that they heard the disciples in their native tongue, meaning the origin of birthplace, the country that they were born in, the language that country spoke. Now what's really exciting about that is, is that it's impossible for all of those disciples to know every single language that would have been native to the peoples that were present in that moment. Even though all of those people would, would equally understand Hebrew, that it could have been easy enough for them to have spoken, which I believe they did, which spoke Hebrew because they knew their audience was Jewish, so they're going to speak in Hebrew. But the people heard the, the disciples in that upper room, the apostles, the people heard them in the crowd in their native tongues meaning that the Holy Spirit gave understanding of what was being spoken by all of those apostles to the hearer in their own language. Now, I don't believe that, that the apostle Peter, the apostle James, or Andrew, or John were, were speaking multiple different languages at the same time. Uh, a human impossibility. And in fact, I understand that this is a spiritual work that is done by God. But still, I think that these guys recognized their audience, wanted to proclaim the gospel to their audience, and I believe that every last one of them was speaking in Hebrew to a Hebrew audience. But that God, through the Holy Spirit, in the ears of the hearer, remember, it is God, the Father, who draws people unto him. And the way in which he draws people unto him is through the Holy Spirit that, that, that drives them into the word of God and convicts them with the word of God. And, and that is the drawing presence of God to, to bring you to Christ. And so I believe that the message of Christ that these apostles were proclaiming, indeed being in Hebrew, but the Holy Spirit giving the hearer the ability to understand 
in their native language, which would shock them to begin with because it's doubtful that anybody preaching in that upper room would understand their native language, and that they, they would be intrigued by this and, and drawn through this to, to listening to the message in which case 3,000 of them came to confession in Christ that day. So it was a very powerful reality that the, that the festival of Shavuot would be the period of time, or Acts chapter 2 of Pentecost, would be the period of time of a pilgrimage that people would gather together to be impacted by the gospel. Then the third feast where pilgrimage is necessary to Jerusalem is this particular feast that Jesus has attended in John chapter number 7 being the Feast of Booths, otherwise known as Sukkot. Now, this is a very exciting feast because it's an eight-day festival, and every day you're going to find the high priest going forth with a pitcher of water, and he's going to walk to a pool, such as the Pool of Bethesda, where Jesus healed a person, or the Pool of Siloam. I think Bethesda was closer to Jerusalem. And he will draw from that, that particular pool the water for the pitcher. And he would walk in back to the temple and he would pour the water into the labor to signify God's provision for the people that they go not thirsty, that he's right there to fulfill and satisfy their needs. And it's a very exciting practice that is done and, and something that we're about to see in, in John chapter number 8 is Jesus utilizes this moment as an opportunity to be able to teach. But remember, as revealed at the beginning of John chapter 7, that, that the Jews are now out to try and f to capture Jesus and to kill him. So he's moving around the society, but he's doing so in secret. He took off away from Jerusalem and he, and he went back up or from Judea, I should say, and he went back up to Galilee because there he has a measure of security and safety. And so with this feast that was about to happen and the pilgrimage that everybody was making, Jesus was planning on coming, but he was going to have to come in private and in secret. But you see, one of the things that we get out of the beginning of John chapter number 7 is, is that his own brethren didn't believe in him. I mean, don't get me wrong. They believed in the miracles that they've seen. They, they believe in the teachings that he's taught. They, they believe to a certain extent that Jesus is Messiah. But they just have not fully comprehended. They haven't fully believed in, in who he is and what his purpose is for coming into the world. So... The, the issue is, is that his own brethren present him a challenge and say, well, the, the things that you do ought to be out in public. You, you shouldn't be hiding in the shadows. If you're the Messiah and you're the Son of God, you ought to be out there proclaiming this. You ought to be out there revealing yourself to the whole world because, because this is our time. This, this is our kingdom. This is the moment in which we're going to rise and take over the world if you're the Messiah, if you're really the king. You see, this was the same mentality that Peter had. If you recall, when, when Peter, when, well, when Jesus was going to be arrested, that Peter pulled out his his blade and and went to swinging and ended up cutting the the priest's servant's ear off, 
and Jesus having to chastise Peter and tell him to put away his blade and tell him this is not the way that my kingdom is going to be fought for. This is not the way my kingdom works. So these guys, they just haven't come to a knowledge of who Jesus is and what, what the Father's plan is for Jesus and to be worked through Jesus. They don't know any of that. They're just assuming, okay, Jesus, if you're the king, then let's start this kingdom and let's kick Rome's butt. That's, that's basically what they were going for. So they really didn't believe in him. But nevertheless, as his brethren went on down to, to the festival, once they get there, they're immediately questioned, okay, where is Jesus? And of course, the brethren say, you know what? We don't know. He didn't even indicate if he was coming or not. We don't have any idea. Well, everybody was murmuring under their breath about this Jesus, and some were saying, yeah, he's a great guy, and, and some were saying, ah, he's a devil, he's, he's a deceiver. But everybody was looking for him at this point of time. Now, when we get to uh, close to where we're starting today, we get to verse number 14, and the scripture shows us about the midst of the feast in the middle of it. In other words, about the fourth day out of this eight-day festival. Everybody's been looking for Jesus at the beginning. But by this fourth day, nobody cares. Everybody's already got wrapped up in the, the festivities and the different things that are happening during the time of this festival, and everybody kind of not entirely forgotten about the concept of Jesus, but it just doesn't matter at this point. They're, they're engaged in their festival. And so it says that, the, that about the midst of the feast, in verse number 14, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And verse 15, the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man understand letters, being as that he, he's never learned? Now, one of the things that we got out of, of the message on Friday was the fact that Jesus was, was recognized as a rabbi, but only sort of satirically. So what I mean by that is, is it, it was kind of sarcasm for people to come up to Jesus and say, good master, or to call him rabbi. He wasn't recognized as someone who who indeed would be a certified rabbi if it hadn't been for the baptism that uh, John the Baptist would per perform on Jesus, thereby certifying the ministry of Jesus from the Sadduceeical order. See, had it been a Pharisee that, that baptized Jesus, his uh, ministry could easily be contended with. They, they could have argued over that, that he would have been certified at all. They would have said that the, the Pharisee was a rogue Pharisee, that he, was, that he wasn't a true Pharisee. That he, that he, there's a multitude of things that they could have said about a, a Pharisee and the baptism of Jesus, but there's nothing that they could say about John the Baptist. And in fact, it would go against the entire people of Jerusalem at that point if they would have gone against John the Baptist because all of them, and I, I, I don't use that term uh, lucidly, I'm saying all of them uh, believed him to be the Messiah. And so as you would consider the reality of, of Jesus as, as dealing with these people who were constantly trying to find a, 
a bone to pick with him. They just can't because John the Baptist was the son of Zechariah. He was the Sadducee that everybody believed actually was the Messiah. And so, they, they, they cannot argue against the baptism of Jesus, nor can they argue with the certification of Jesus' ministry. And so that it comes down to this point that, that Jesus then is, is capable of being able to walk into this temple, is capable of being able to teach, and no one can argue with the idea of, of his certification. But they are very sarcastic about calling him rabbi. They're very sarcastic about treating him as a religious leader, as it was, as a minister of the Torah, because they don't want him to be. They don't want his message. And so when he comes in and he's teaching, there's another issue here is that nobody nobody could could certify that he was trained like the apostle Paul by Gamaliel nobody could could certify that he was trained by a known rabbi of the the period of time did he go to synagogue school has he has he been trained by the the sadduceical order See, nobody knows the educational background of Jesus, and so everybody believes that Jesus, it, it would be impossible for him to be able to understand the things of doctrine. Now, when you, when you see them say, how does this man understand letters having never learned? It's not referring to understanding the Hebrew alphabet or understanding the written language of the Hebrews. What it's talking about, the letters, is is understanding the the script of Torah, understanding the teachings of the elders, say of the Talmud, or the written oral teachings of the the previous elders. How can this man understand doctrine? Is what they're getting at. And Jesus even makes mention of this as he comes down in verse number sixteen, where we start our day, and he says. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And so you understand the connection of the letters being the, the, the concept of the doctrine that, that is being referred to. And how is it possible for Jesus to understand doctrine, being as that he's not recognized as going through uh, one of their prominent people? In our modern day, it would be like uh, somebody coming into the pulpit and preaching and being solid and teaching such marvelous uh, lessons from the Word of God, but then somebody saying, okay, well, what seminary did you go to? And this person saying, well, I didn't go to a seminary. You say, well, okay, well, what Bible college did you go to? And a person says, I didn't go to a Bible college. And you sit back and you marvel and say, how can this person have such an intentive knowledge of the Word of God, having never gone to a seminary and gotten a bachelor, a master, a doctor, a degree? How can this person have such an intimate connection with the Word of God, having never learned as we, or having never been taught, such as what was being said about Jesus in verses 14 and 15? And the reality is, is that though I, I think that seminaries and Bible colleges, which I've gone to one, I, th I think that they do have a, a place and a purpose, but their place and purpose is, isn't necessarily to give you the knowledge. This is a work that is done by the Holy Spirit inside of the saved believer. This is not a work done through the Bible college. Now, the Bible college will cause you to, 
to be impacted by different thoughts the, the Bible college will cause you to to be be intrigued or, or brought against different ideologies or or different places of scripture that you might not have looked into yet to cause you to lean upon the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom to be able to seek out those matters that you haven't even thought to seek out yet. But they're certainly not going to provide you that level of education that is going to be necessary to be able to serve God's people behind a pulpit or in the ministry. Understand that that is a work that is solely given unto the Holy Spirit, who is the guide, who is the comforter, who is the truth, who is, who is inside of us to lead us unto a knowledge of holiness. This isn't a work where I go to school for four years and I'm trained on how to preach, and and that's exactly what happens in Bible colleges. You go to you go there. They're gonna by by your second year, your third year, they're gonna have you up in a pulpit. They're gonna have you speaking. They're gonna have a whole panel of teachers down there judging every little uh, thing about you. You you walk to the left too much. You say um or uh or or and so too much you you do this too much you do that too much and by the time your your senior year and your graduation takes place i mean you are a well-crafted speaker you are capable of being able to uh, persuade and woo a crowd but that has absolutely nothing to do with the holy spirit that has everything to do with the way that that Bible college or seminary literally molded you and crafted you into their image of what they think that a minister, that a, that a pastor would, is going to be. So oftentimes you end up with a cookie cutter uh, type of theology. Oftentimes you have individuals from from the seminary that are coming into the pulpits that are going to be articulating everything that they learned from the seminary, but not necessarily led at all by the Holy Spirit, which is why they got a filing cabinet with with all of their messages, and they can just go to the filing cabinet, open it, and then pick a message out, and that's what I'm going to preach this week. And they, there, there's one gentleman that I had heard about that had 52 messages, and he would preach those messages, rather from message 1 to 52, or, or the next year he'd go 52, and he'd bring it back to 1. And, and, and it, it was well-crafted, and, and he knew the messages well, so he could, he could articulate those messages without even having to read them anymore. And, and everybody just absolutely loved it. The crowd went wild because it was such a well-crafted service that had nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so Jesus, when, when they, they are, are interested in him, they're saying, how is this guy able to even stand before us that he's got all of this knowledge, but where did it come from? Well, Jesus tells them, my, my doctrine, the, the system of teaching that I am doing isn't from your rabbis, and it isn't from your synagogues, and it isn't even from this temple and, and the Sadducees. He said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Now let's see how mad that Jesus can make these fellows in Jerusalem. He says in verse number 17 down to 19, If any man will do his will, uh, the one who sent Jesus, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaks of himself seeks his own glory. But he that seeks his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. 
Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keep the law. Why do you go about to kill me? <laughs> yeah, I think you just upset him. But, but it's the truth. You know, starting from verse 19 to begin with, all of these people in the temple, all of the Jews, they venerate Moses. Uh, the only other person that they would venerate more than Moses would be Abraham. As often they were telling Jesus, well, we are of Abraham's seed. So Abraham is their, their foundation, understanding. But Moses, he's the one that gave him the law. And so they're very keen to keep both of these people very high in their estimations. And so Jesus works between these two. Now Jesus brings up, now Moses gave you the law. And of course we understand that thou shalt not kill. We, we understand that not only is there a great dissertation uh, concerning murder that would be found in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and, and that there would be actual cities that would be set up as sanctuary cities for if somebody had ended up killing someone and they were able to get to these cities, that, that they would be in a sanctuary status until it could be determined what the actual event of the, the killing was. And so they have a great amount of information about murder, but let's keep it simple. The Ten Commandments at the Sixth Commandment tells us don't murder. Oddly enough, it's the Sixth Commandment. It's the commandment that recognizes the weakest part of man or, or, or the greatest failing of mankind. Of course, being murder recognized back with Cain and Abel. And so you, you get to this place where he says, well, Moses gave you the law, but none of you keep the law. Now, this word keep, I talk about it all the time, but this word keep can be superimposed by the word observe because the word keep means to protect. It means to guard. It means to fulfill in every point, right? If you're going to keep your promise, you need to fulfill it in every point, but it also means to observe, and so he says, none of you observe the law. He says, you go about to kill me. Well, if you observe the law or you sought to fulfill the law, of course, if you think that the law is a, is a means behind your perfection, if you think that keeping the law is something that is going to aid in your ability to please God unto salvation, then, then certainly you're not going to want to murder anybody, right? Well, the Jews in, in part did believe that the law was a sanctification for them to be able to be pleasing before God. And so it would be necessary for them to be able to keep the law, right, uh, as far as fulfill it in every point. But of course, they had a mind to kill Jesus. And so it's impossible for them to claim to be children of Moses, as it was, and children of the law, and yet have such intense desire in their heart to break it. Well, the same thing can be said of every single one of us today who who claim to be children of God but have intense desires to break all of God's commandments. We know we're going to break God's commandments. We've planned to break God's commandments because we love the things of the flesh. We're going to drink that alcohol until we can't stand up. We're going to go to those parties. We're going to listen to that kind of music that draws us away from God. We're going to to act like fools at the game and worship the the sport more than the creator. We're, we're going to do all of these things that we already have planned. We've already just 
justified all of these things that we enjoy as being okay for us to do because as our own gods, we have decided what God is allowed to change in our lives and what God stays out of. And we, we've already crafted all of that. So when people like me talk about events like this and moments like this, you get all offended because all of a sudden everything that you've decided is okay gets put on a line and, and gets judged by God. And, and just as being said here, none of you actually keep God's word. None of you actually keep God's, God's ways. Why? Because you've already certified your own sin as being okay. Now, I'm not saying that that's a reality for you. Maybe you're a very godly person. I don't know. Some of you I do know, but most of you I've yet to meet, and I hope to meet one day. It'd be fun to have a, a preacher's corner reunion, rather down in Virginia or somewhere in between, where everybody could gather together and say, hi, I'm this person, or whatever. But nevertheless, You've got the scenarios here where, where Jesus flat out tells them, he said, Moses gave you the law, but none of you keep the law. Why are you going about to kill me? <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's a, a perfect question. So what do the people say? Instead of considering what Jesus said, instead of saying, you know what, let's, let's think about this for a second. Now, they didn't do that at all. Just like when you call somebody out, for something that is not being right. And oftentimes, people, other people fuss at me. So it, it isn't the person necessarily that I've spoken to about the sin in their life. It's other people that heard me talking to this person about the sin in their life that get offended for them. And they, and they come to you and they say, how dare you say these things about this person? Don't you know that blah, 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 blah. And I think, well, okay, but doesn't sin need to be revealed? Doesn't sin need to be called out? Why are we trying as a society to hide and harbor the wickedness of, of the people? It just allows for wickedness to fester. Why aren't we bringing this out unto the light? So that it can be dealt with, not only by society, but by God. And so the people that Jesus speaks to and says, look, Moses gave you the law, but you don't keep the law because you're trying to kill me. What is your problem? And the people, instead of being responding to this in humility, I was about to say, instead of being convicted, but the issue here is that they are convicted. It is a conviction to hear Jesus tell you that you just, you don't keep the law. Being as that is the law that you desire to keep, the law that you think you're keeping, the law that you've decided what you have kept and what doesn't matter. I mean, that you really believe that you are a follower. And so when Jesus comes to you and he nails you with this comment, you, you become convicted. But this conviction, and I've, I've said this a million times, guys, conviction will be met with two responses. I've never seen a third response, and so I don't believe this to be a fallacy of either or. I've never seen, well, you know what? It is a fallacy of either or. There is a third response. The Lord just brought it to my mind just now. The third response is indifference. So I got to eat crow on that. So there are three responses. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. There are three responses that can be met with, against conviction. One 
is humility. To be told that, that error and violation of the law has existed in your heart because of sin is to be met in humility with repentance, crying out to God and seeking forgiveness. The second way is indifference, that it doesn't really matter to you at all. Somebody calls you out on something, you say, yeah, whatever. Oh, I don't care. I'm enjoying the moment. I'm enjoying life for a time. What difference does it make to me? And that's indifference. So the first way that that conviction is met is with humility or being humble. The second way is with indifference. Who cares? The third way is anger, is wrath. How dare you uh, point this out in my life? How dare you say such things to me? I'm a good person. How dare you speak up to me like this? I'm the leader sort of thing. And so Jesus uh, speaks out to them. In verse number 20, the people answered and said, you, you have a devil in you. Who goes about to kill you? So they, they literally get offended by Jesus calling them out on what is in their heart to do to him. Because they, they have openly, they, they've made it known among the people around the, Jerusalem that they want, to, they want to arrest him and they want to kill him. It's already a widely known thing that they want to kill Jesus. And so Jesus just flat calls them out on it. He says, so why do you want to kill me? And they said, oh, 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 oh you're crazy. You got a devil, man. Who, who in the world wants to go kill you? Who in the world has even thought about killing you? Well, all the people that, that happen to be a party of this conversation that may be in this temple or around this area at this time, all of those people know that the Jews want him dead. So when you come to this position that everybody is looking to to kill you as it would be in Jesus' shoes, and the reality is, is that you've communicated with them and talking about the law of Moses that they all believed that they were going to follow, and you make known to them the reality that they indeed are not following the law of Moses, but seeking to kill you would be in violation of said law, and the conviction comes upon the hearts of these people as to whether they're going to humble themselves to accept what you're saying and repent unto God and listen to your teachings from that point on, or meet what you said with an indifference to just simply not care or get so angry with you that they are prepared to take you out and stone you at this very moment in the shoes of Jesus, you, you have to ask the question, what's going to happen? But nevertheless, the people uh, fearing the crowds is what the end result of verse number 20 reveals, is that they feared the crowds because easily they, they had in their heart to just grab a hold of him and end the matter right then and there. But they can't do this because it would cause them to have a bad light among the people that are gathered together at this feast. And so they try to belittle Jesus a little bit, answering him and saying, you have a devil who goes about to kill you. In other words, saying, you're crazy. You're, you're an idiot. Who in the world do you think is going to try to kill you? And Jesus, he goes on in verse number 21, and, and, and he answers and he says, I've, I've done one work and you all marvel. <laughs> Moses gave you circumcision. Not because it's of Moses, but of the fathers. And you, on the Sabbath day, circumcise a man. Now, he's done one work. 
Uh, the concept of the work that he might be speaking of here. He fed 5,000 people. Or, let's go back a little bit further than that. He raised up the man with the, who was lame at the pool of Bethesda on a Sabbath day. Or maybe, maybe we could go back from that. He, he, he's done all of these different things, right? And so he says, I've done one thing. I've done one work. And you all marvel. Now, the idea of marveling in verse number 21 is not that they're standing in amazement, but that they're freaking out. That they've got to silence this guy. They've got to shut him down. I mean, he's done one work. And, and what that means is everybody's starting to believe that this guy's really the Son of God, that this guy's really Messiah. we got to get rid of him. He said, I've done one work, and you all marvel. He said, Moses gave you circumcision, and on the Sabbath day, now, from the healing of that man in the pool of Bethesda on Sabbath day versus what's being done here on the Sabbath day. You circumcise a man. So Jesus, he's bringing up uh, past events to be able to nail these guys because they're so offended at Jesus as concerning a violation of the Sabbath. I mean, that's the, the reason why they want to kill him, right? Is because they believe him to have done a work that is in violation of the Sabbath day. But of course, the the resurrection, as it was, of the lame man, of, of the withered body being able to regain composure and stand up, is that no different from the concept of a circumcision, as it would be the removal of flesh to, to be able to certify a young one as being an Israelite? Is, is, that, is that nothing different? So he says, if a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me, verse 23, because I made a man whole on the Sabbath day? You see, Jesus equates the, the removal of the skin from the, the reconstitution of the flesh. So one... The, the circumcision is the removal of the flesh. And, and on the other, he, he reconstituted. He, he regained power to the flesh. And so it's both a work dealing with the flesh. And it's both occurred on a Sabbath day. So what's the difference? That's exactly the key. So Jesus nails them. Now, Note that Jesus isn't talking about the feeding of 5,000 anymore. He isn't talking about any of the other things. He's dealing with the issue and the, the reason why they want him dead. Is this, is this raising up of this lame man at the pool of Bethesda all the way back in, in John chapter number 4, I believe, or, or at the beginning of chapter 5, is this lame man getting raised up at the pool of Bethesda and it happened to be on a Sabbath day. So they're all trying to kill him. Uh, because of this, and he says, if a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry at me because I have made a man every bit whole on the Sabbath day? He said, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now, here's a key, uh, and, and this is a problem that most people have, is as soon as you call out sin, the very first 
scripture verse that most people have memorized, well, most sinners have memorized anyway, is judge not lest you be judged. I mean, they jump right into Matthew chapter number seven and they say, well, judge not. You're not supposed to judge people. And, and most of the times when you're calling out sin in a sinner's life, it's not that sinner necessarily that's getting upset with you. Sometimes you're having a conversation with somebody and, and they're actually receiving it because they see that you care about them. So they're they're listening to you. But it's those other religious morons that are around them that say, well, you can't be judging somebody like that. You, you can't judge it. The Bible tells you not to judge. It says, judge not lest you be judged. And they constantly use Matthew chapter number seven as, as a means to be able to say that Christians should not judge or, or be judgmental. But here in verse number 24 of John chapter number seven, Jesus actually tells you <laughs> that, that judgment is not a bad thing. He says, judge not according to the appearance. Now, what that means is don't judge somebody based on how you feel about them. Don't judge somebody based on what you think they've done without knowing what they've done. Don't judge somebody based on the way that you see them, the way that they're dressed or the way that they carry themselves. All of these things are superficial. All of these things are on appearance. But Jesus says, judge righteous judgment. In other words, he encouraged them to make judgment, but he said, judge a righteous judgment. Now, what does that entail? Well, the reality is, is that a righteous judgment is going to be that judgment that is made according to the Word of God. In other words, if I'm going to call somebody out because of their sinful behavior, I, I cannot call them out on what I feel is sinful behavior or what I think sinful behavior would be. But as I see the things that they're doing, and the Word of God has a testimony, and a written testimony against the things that they're doing, that when I call them out according to the Word of God for the sin that is, is evident in their life, that it is the Word of God that has brought the conviction upon them. That is a righteous judgment. When I stand in a pulpit and I preach about sin and somebody is convicted, even when they become offended, because I have made known that the pleasure of their flesh is something that is in sin, and they come and they're angry and they're fussing and saying, Don't, you can't judge me, judge not lest you be judged. The reality is, is the judgment that has come upon their soul didn't come from me, for I had, I don't know what sin the congregation is, is reveling in. I don't know much about that at all. But I do know what the Word of God has to testify about sin, and I make testimony and preaching about the sin the Word of God reveals. And so if there be a conviction that come upon the heart as concerning the testimony of what the Word of God reveals, then indeed the judgment that has been levied against you is a righteous judgment, for it came from the Word of God under conviction of the Holy Spirit in you. And my suggestion is get right with God. That is a righteous judgment. And that is what Jesus is calling us. He's calling these Jews. He's calling the people 
to to execute. And so with that, I believe we will get into the the teaching of John chapter number 7 and verse number 25. I think we'll get into that tomorrow. Let's turn to the Lord and ask His blessing upon this day. Father, we are grateful. We ask that you will be with us, that you will overshadow us, Lord, with the understanding of the Word of God that we may grow thereby. We pray, Father, that you will continue to just be with us, cause that face to shine upon us, and we'll be grateful for everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, folks, may God bless you, keep you, cause his face to shine upon you, and I'll catch you tomorrow for John 7.25 and following. Y'all take care.